Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Oxford Policy Podcast. We are here once again, and welcome to all the regular listeners and everyone that's joining for the first time um, to hear another episode by the Bavlatnik School of Government Students. Um, as it's one of the priorities to have a chance to speak to policy practitioners, today we have all the way from South Africa, Andrew Brain. Uh, please uh, have a warm welcome to the podcast. He is an international expert of economic and urban development um, and partnering for systems change, who has worked in the development sector in South Africa for more than 41 years. He was a senior official in the constitutional department of Nelson's Mandela government in the intermediate post-apartheid years and was the first post-apartheid city manager of Cape Town. He's currently CEO of the Western Cape Economic Development Partnership, and he has experience from the side of the government, also being in civil society and as an articulator of actors to promote change, which is the main topic we're going to be covering today. Um, he has been a driving force behind the establishment of several important institutions and working in many of the nation's cities. So I'm going to leave all the mic uh, free for Andrew to, to share a little bit more about, about his experience. Um, and so I would like to open the conversation by hearing a bit of, of, of how did you find South Africa in that key moment? Um, what was it like in terms of institutions and social cohesion post-apartheid period? And how did you navigate from that? What were your uh, main um, courses of action in that time? Well, thank you very much for that introduction. And it's uh, wonderful to be part of this uh, podcast. Um, it's a great privilege to be here. Um, let me start off by just quickly describing my involvement over the last, it's actually 45 years, um, but my involvement in the process of change in my own country uh, in three phases. The first phase I would describe is the well-known anti-apartheid struggle from uh, approximately 1976 to 1990, uh, where effectively we were against the state. It was an illegitimate, um, draconian, coercive state, and we were fighting it from the outside by all means possible. The, the second phase that I've been involved in a process of change is what I'd call the transition phase, where I was working uh, in the state and with the state, with the new democratic state, uh, from, uh, the, from about 1994, with our first democratic elections, uh, to when I finished being city manager of Cape Town in 2001. And then since then, which is the, the, the greatest part of my uh, involvement, I've been involved in the in-between space. In other words, between state and society, between the state and market and the commons uh, uh, over the last 25 years. So I describe myself as a partnering practitioner. Let me go back to... 1994, because you asked the question, what did we inherit? And clearly, we inherited at that stage a very low trust, low agreement environment. Um, and it's not surprising. I mean, we, 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 we had a society uh, split into, into two. After 300 years of colonial uh, rule, of slavery, of uh, apartheid, uh, we experienced dispossession, 
We experience conflict and brutalization of people, uh, institutionalized racism, and basically 300 years of uh, unfair treatment. Um, and so we came into the negotiation process, and I was involved very much at the local government level. Uh, it's the local government transition process was was part of the wider transition to a democratic state in South Africa and society. But let me just focus on what we were trying to do at a local level. And local level is important because it's the closest to where people experience government. And we inherited a system of um, legally and racially segregated white local authorities and black local authorities. And underpinning that was the fact that the what we'd call the tax base of the city or the town or the region or the district accrued to the white side of the city or town or region and district. In other words, it was a completely unfair system where the resources that are generated from property taxes and from businesses um, were, were, were directed through the budget of the white local authorities in an unfair way, in a discriminatory way. So it was fundamentally unfair, heightening the low trust, low agreement uh, in, environment. And, and Andrew, and so we had to. Yes, so, so I, I'm, you're probably going to get to this, but yes, just, please. Um, yeah. I'd like you to emphasize how do you convince people to start trusting the institution in this transition process? Finding in this low trust environment, and then you, you, you stop there and say, okay, how am I going to? Um, come, start including the people more in, a, in through the formal um, pathway. Well, what we did after 19, fr from 1990 onwards, we set up something called the Local Government um, uh, Transition Forum. It was a national body. And we included both what were called the statutory side, which is the people in the apartheid government, and the non-statutory side, which was everyone, the majority, who had been involved in the anti-apartheid struggle, in the trade unions, the civic associations, the youth bodies, um, the uh, research uh, organizations, the women's groups um, that had contributed to ending apartheid by 1994. So we deliberately brought people together. And wh when you bring people together, you have to have some sort of intermediation. Because if you throw everyone together in, in a big room, in a mass meeting, clearly the emotions of the low trust, low agreement in history take over and you never get anywhere. And so I was part of the team where we selected people from both the statutory side and the non-statutory side to hold the middle ground and help both sides through a process of change. Now, it's a very good question you ask because at one stage during that process, the white minority communities in many of the small towns were threatening to take up arms and resist the transition by force. And they were trying to work with the old South African Defence Force to get access to weapons and soldiers uh, to resist the change. And so we realised uh, we, we had to build in certain compromises in that local government transition process. And the local government transition process took a whole 10 years. And we divided it into three phases. 
We called it a pre-interim phase, an interim phase, and then the final phase. And in the pre-interim and interim phases, there were, in a sense, minority safeguards built in so that we could keep people with us through the transition. We didn't want to paint them into the corner um, so that they would fight their way out of, of, of that by force, by violence, by undermining the whole uh, peace, peaceful transition. It was called giving them a bus ticket home. And that got us through over a 10-year period to a situation of, in a sense, uh, non-racial democratic majority rule local authorities, where we combined every former white local authority and every former black local authority in the country to a new town, a new city, one city, one tax base, equally distributed to all areas that we could look at redress, we could look at the redevelopment or development of the former black areas, the townships that had never received uh, adequate resources. Um, um, we had to do that in both the urban and rural areas. Yeah. Andrew, and, and under that line, would you give us an example of how, let's say, talking about one of the types of resources, you were trying to change that that reality. Is there Walk us through... Um, how do you do the stakeholder work, um, the partnership work you do? Could be a more recent example. You've worked through uh, the organization you're working on now uh, on how to bring these people together to solve a certain issue. Uh, because right now, when, you, when we see this complex uh, panorama of what you had in, in your hands in that moment, it seems very hard to pin it down to how you started working Um is there an example of something now, how you start when you mm. go more granular um, in the case by case? Well, firstly, I would say generally um, a process of change works if there are three conditions in place. Firstly, people have got to believe that that change is necessary. And we had to convince, I mean, I don't. I, we didn't need to convince the um, oppressed black majority that change was necessary, but we had to convince the white minority that it was in their interests that th that change was necessary and that the, the old apartheid system was no longer sustainable. Secondly, uh, the, the next condition is, well, the change is going to be effective. In other words, it's, it's going to produce the results. Otherwise, people withdraw from a change process. So, there you have to be uh, you have to do your homework you have to be technically sound you have to have data you have to have credible people leading the change process and you've got to convince people that the path that you are on is credible and legitimate and thirdly and most importantly a process of change has got to be fair it's got to deliver a fair outcome and all the groups and this is the most difficult both then and today, everyone has to feel that they are being fairly treated. And obviously, many groups in society tend to feel, I'm being treated unfairly, look at what they are getting, I want the same treatment. And even if people are actually being treated fairly, they will have a perception of being treated unfairly, and that can undermine the process of change. And that's, that's you with the hat of the government authority. Um, how does that change when you're a third party uh, 
whether it's an NGO, whether it's an activist uh, civil society organization, how does a change-making process of solving an issue like this um, come, come to be different? Well, I don't think it changes those three preconditions. So whether you're driving, you can be a change-maker in government, you can be a government leader, you can be head of an administration, and you could be leading change from within government. You can be advocating change outside of government as a human rights organization, as a um, social movement, as a community-based organization, as an NGO and civil society, as a faith-based organization. And there are many, many examples of that all over the world. Or you can occupy what I call the in-between space. In other words, you are deliberately trying to provide a collaborative platform for state and society to work better together. But wherever you are located as a change maker in that spectrum, in government, outside of government, and in, in, in between government and those outside of government, you still it, it still holds change needs to be seen to be necessary, effective, and fair by all the parties. And sometimes it's government that says, we find we don't need to change. Why are you agitating? And they will blame uh, conspiracy theorists. Um, they will complain that human rights organizations keep taking them to court and are blocking service delivery and change. So obviously people and, and people outside of government will also say, this government is useless. This government doesn't listen to us. This government is illegitimate. And so... People on all sides label each other and then only want to talk to people in their own bubble. And the work of an intermediary person or facilitator or organization is to break through that logjam and act as a translation service between the language of government and the politicians and the technocrats and the bureaucrats and the global bilateral agencies and donors and things like that on the one hand, and the language of community, the language of NGOs. Uh, and then if you bring in the language of academics and researchers, that can really confuse things sometimes. So you've got to always translate the different languages so that people ultimately can find the common words to describe where you want to go and how you want to get there. And you, you mentioned a bit about the polarization and the conspiracy theories you were facing back then. How different do you think that is happening now? Is it just a different uh, face to the same coin, the polarization that we're living globally or even at the South African level? Um, how do you see, think that the institutional consolidation has come through? Uh, were the three phases they implemented back then in the strategy? Mm -hmm. um, were, were, were successful and now we're facing uh, different types of changes uh, at our, of our, our, in, in the trust level or the co social cohesion. What's your take on yeah. that? So I described how we inherited a low trust, low agreement environment. And 30 years on into our democratic dispensation, I would say it is unfortunately still there, not just because of the historical legacy, although that is still strong, but it's also the recent experiences of corruption, of state capture, of persistent poverty and inequality, of the shocks and stresses of climate change that are not being adequately dealt with in terms of helping communities to become 
more resilient. So I would say that there's still a persistence of low levels of agreement and high levels of uncertainty and low levels of trust. Um, so, you know, recently we were advising our presidential climate commission who had, a, they've just uh, written a um, just transition policy framework to get us to the post-coal low-carbon society that we need to get through. And, and, and how do you make sure that you take people with you and people are not dispossessed by that transition? And we highlighted that if they do not address the, the polarization that we still have in our society within communities, within government, and between state and society, um, and of course, as, as you know well, this is in fact exacerbated by the digital age and social media. I mean, back in the days, in 30 years ago, when we were doing the, the original local government transition process, we didn't have to worry about what people were saying, uh, flaming each other on, on social media and polarizing it with um, the pol proliferation of fake news and post-truth statements. And now I think doing change is far more difficult. I mean, there we went out door to door in communities and we talked at town halls and we mobilized people face to face. Now people tend to rely on social media and often it's putting out as, as much fake news about the other side as possible. And it really makes the process of bringing people together to get a common agenda for joint action really difficult. No, definitely. And I think it's, I mean, as uh, as millennials or probably other um, younger generations that are listening to the podcast, uh, it's something that we have to take in consideration, in, not only in communication-wise to spreading ideas, but also as a um, com community-building tool. Um, in my, my own country has, has put on precedence because of the, the role of social media. So um, since uh, speaking to that audience and your experience on your on the tool on the change making toolkit, um, share a little bit more. Um, what are those um, skills they they should watch out to with the idea of whether it's in activism on human um, human rights? You mentioned climate change and and other activities we're working on. Well, it, it, in response to the COVID crisis, in response to the food crisis that we went through during COVID. Prior to that, we had a severe drought crisis in my home city, which is Cape Town. And now we're dealing with an energy crisis in our country with what we call load shedding. We found that we had, we devised a very simple slogan. It's called the three C's, which stands for connect, communicate, and collaborate. Make sure you connect people together. Otherwise, people and communities retreat into their comfort zones and tend to look inwards rather than outwards. Secondly, watch your communication, watch your language, watch your facts. Make sure that people um, are, are, are able to get access to what is really happening. And then thirdly, help people with collaboration. Now, now, how do you help people to collaborate? Because it's not a natural instinct, unfortunately, um, including within government and what we call a whole-of-government approach, and between government and society, what we call a whole-of-society approach. So the sorts of things, if you're a change agent occupying that middle ground, trying to bring people together, 
not just to make peace, but also to help people work together for the development of society, the development of communities, to include previously excluded communities and groups and things like that. So what do you got to do? You've got to deal affirmatively with difference. You, you can't be scared of difference. You've got to embrace it because juxtaposing difference in a safe space can drive change. You can come up with the most amazing innovations when you bring different ideas together. If the same people with the same thoughts and the same culture are talking to each other in little bubbles, you're not going to drive any change. You're just going to reinforce prejudice. Secondly, we have a slogan, uh, listen twice, talk once. As a change maker, you have to be able to listen deeply. Don't always think that you have to speak and talk. Don't always think that you have to lead. Sometimes you lead from behind just by listening deeply and allowing people to express their voice in a meeting, in a process. So the notion of agency and enabling agency of all the role players, particularly those who are dispossessed or excluded and marginalized historically, how do you listen to their voices? How do you hear the voices of the system? You, As a leader of the process, you don't have to know everything because there's enough wisdom in the system and trust that process. Thirdly, I think it's helpful to have a degree of what we would call emotional, social, and relationship intelligence. If you don't know yourself well as a human being, how do you know the other? How do you, how can you empathize with people that you've never grown up with, whose language perhaps you don't speak and vice versa, people that you perhaps have never worked with before? If you are unsure of yourself, what we'd call emotional intelligence, and you're showing up quite defensive and quite anxious, then you're never going to be able to reach out and really understand in an open way the, the, what other people think and what they want to do and what their dreams and aspirations are. So we say help people to work on their emotional, social, and then relationship intelligence, the relationship uh, of the system as a whole. And then perhaps fourthly, very important to learn by doing. We can be paralyzed by talking and talking and talking. And sometimes dialogue doesn't help anything. It seems funny to say that because dialogue is important. But we prioritize stepping into action because you build trust quicker by working together than by talking together. Go out and do things, even if there's just a few things together. And in doing so, you'll give people confidence that they can work together and know each other a little bit better. And then you, that improves the dialogue. It improves the discourse. If you just rely on forums of bringing people together, people can actually use those in a very destructive way. They can filibuster. They can um, defend their turf. They can pay lip service to coordination and integration, but actually they're just there to preserve their empire, their institution, their funding, and things like that. So get out there, take action. But, but, but when I say learning by doing, as you take action, you must be able to pause, reflect, learn, and then adapt and adjust. Don't just assume once you've got a course of action that that's going to be the only thing that you do. So it's being an adaptive and collaborative leader 
and listening and learning as you are acting is the best way to make change. And if you allow me, uh, allow me Andrew, I would add also that to all that wisdom, uh, the patience of the process, because as you mentioned, it might, whether it's 10 years or even you might not even be alive to see the transformation a society can make or even a single uh, smaller institution. So I think it's, it's a gradual process that, that takes more than, than one person and, and building that community, uh, it's certainly something that, that you've worked out throughout um, many, many years. So um, thank you for those inspiring and tangible words. Uh, and thank you for joining the podcast. Um, everyone, please share, like, and comment. And please follow us on Instagram as Oxford Policy Pod to follow more content by practitioners in the policy works around the globe. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much. <laughs>